Chapter 4 of Yankee at Molokai by Eva K. Betts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 4 Ira Becomes Brother Joseph. The rhythmic thud of the hoofs of a galloping horse caught the attention of two ladies driving a stylish dog cart. They looked toward the field from which the sound came. It's Ira Dutton, said one woman. How do you know? asked the other. With the sun in your eyes, you can't possibly see him. I don't need to see his face. I can tell from the silhouette. I don't know of any other man who sits a horse so well. Nor one who rides with such devil-may-care abandon, her friend agreed. It would be so nice if he'd settled down in this neighborhood, settled down any place before he breaks his neck, she added with a gasp, as he put his horse to a seemingly impossible jump. I suppose his work adjusting government claims keeps him traveling around too much to permit him ever to get a feeling of permanence in any one place. Their fat pony trotted on, and for some time the silence in the carriage was unbroken. He's a strange person, the old woman spoke consideringly. He used to drink very heavily, I understand, but my husband tells me that for four years, since 1876, young Mr. Dutton has tasted no liquor at all. He made some sort of vow, I believe. Yet he is as gay and full of fun as ever. I do think he would make a fine husband for my niece, Luane. Have you introduced them? Yes, he was very gallant, of course. Rode with her, took her driving, danced with her. But that was all. The younger woman looked thoughtful. It's strange. Luanne is such a charming girl. But Mr. Dutton has always seemed a sad young man to me. I get a feeling that he has lost something, or is looking for something. A wife, maybe. But Ira had a wife, although he had not seen her since shortly after they were married. In 1881, a year after the conversation recorded above, she died. And Ira was seeking something. He was seeking religion. When, in 1876, he had decided to take stock of himself, he had been unhappy with the result of his survey. So he decided that the first step toward saving his life from the mess it was in would be to cut away from bad companions and from drinking. With the same intensity that he had applied to the problem of building boats for his pontoon bridges, to getting supplies through the enemy lines, he now studied the problem of his life. He had ceased doing the evil things which had been habitual, but that, it seemed to him, was only negative. What he wanted now was something positive. There must be somewhere he was sure, a church which would teach him penance and atonement, and also show him how to construct a road toward eternal life, a road, perhaps, of service to his fellow man. He tried one church after another. None seemed to give him what he wanted. He observed his friends. Were they getting from their churches what he felt a church should give? Silently he asked the question many times, and at last, in Memphis, in a case of Mrs. Simmons, a devout Catholic, the answer was yes. He talked to her, questioned her, consulted with her. At her suggestion, finally, he went to a priest for instruction. From the first time he went to Mass, he sensed that here was something no other church had. A presence which he felt on the altar seemed to speak to him. He admired everything about Mrs. Simma's faith, and when he began to study it, he was particularly taken with St. Joseph, 
the quiet, wise, strong head of the family which sheltered the divine child. When he was received into the church in April of 1883, he was given the name of Joseph. To all intents and purposes, the wild Ira Dutton died then. He was replaced by Joseph Dutton, a man determined to spend the rest of his life atoning for past misdeeds. This new man was determined that in his new life he would find some work which had no pay connected with it. Pay in the form of money, that is. His recompense would be in the joy which comes from helping others. While he had been adjusting government claims, he had seen the Trappist Monastery in Kentucky, the Abbey of Our Lady of Gethsemane. There, if anywhere, he was sure, he could bring balance and order to his life. There, he was sure, he would find strength and serenity. He felt no call to enter the priesthood, but the life of an unprofessed brother, taking no vows, but consecrating his days to work and penance, seemed to offer what he wanted. To work in silence, to use his muscles tilling the fields, raising the crops, cutting the trees, and doing it all for the glory of God, that would be true joy. When he arrived in Gethsemane, he found the heavy manual labor easy and even pleasant. Since boyhood he had taken care to keep in good physical condition. When in the army he had often slept on the ground, so the narrow board which was now his bed offered no great hardship. But he wondered about the silence. Would he be able to go day after day, year after year, solemn and silent? He had been there but a short time when he realized that solemnity, as he translated the word, was not part of the Trappist life. True, an open grave was always kept ready for the next man to die, but since death brought a reward from God for a life given to him, there was nothing depressing about that. He learned very soon that it was easy to joke in sign language. He realized, too, that just under the surface was a childlike gaiety which sometimes broke out in storms of merriment among monks and brothers. No, solemn did not mean sad with the Trappists. For twenty months he lived the well-ordered, well-directed life. Then, although he was fully aware of the need for such cloisters, where men give to God the honor that is his, where prayers are constantly offered for those who cannot or will not pray for themselves, he decided that he wanted to serve people in a more active and direct way. The contemplative life, he decided, was not for him. So, with the prayers and good wishes of the monks, he left Gethsemane. He went to New Orleans, and there, in the house of a friend, he came across an old copy of a Catholic paper. In it was a story about Father Damien of Molokai. That's where I must go, Joseph exclaimed. He reread the story. It told of the vigorous young Belgian priest who had gone to work at the leper settlement on the island of Molokai. It described the obstacles he had overcome, the carpentry and building he had done with his own hands. Above all, it spoke of the spiritual salvage work done among the poor sufferers. Until Father Damien had gone to the settlement, the unfortunate lepers had too often been ignored. Cut off from their homes and those they loved, they had too often been forgotten. From biblical times, lepers had been considered unclean. In some countries, a leper was declared legally dead. His estate was divided, and he was sent out to a hut in the middle of a far field, and never again allowed contact with the world of the living. The Hawaiians had long ago set apart part of the island of Molokai for a leper settlement, and for many years the sick people there had received little of either physical or spiritual assistance. 
Sometimes a doctor had been there, more often not. Priests had been sent out on occasion, but until Father Damien had received permission to live there, no priest had been assigned permanently. Conditions, when he arrived, were very dreadful. Food supplies had been scant and irregular in delivery. Very often the sick had been for long periods without medication, looking after each other as best they could. There was no law and order in the colony. There was no hope. Then Father Damien had gone to Molokai and changed all that, and the changes he made had an impact on most of the leper colonies throughout the world. Now, Joseph learned through the old paper, Father Damien himself had leprosy. He would need strong hands to carry on the physical end of his work. Joseph decided to offer himself. There, if anywhere on earth, he could help the needy. He learned that at the University of Notre Dame there was a priest, Father Hudson, who knew Father Damien. At the same school was Charles Warren Stoddard, whose beautiful and tender book about his visit to Molokai had done much to awaken the world to knowledge of the heroic priest. Joseph hurried to Indiana, and received assurance that Father Damien would welcome him. It took him a few weeks to wind up his business affairs and say his goodbyes. Then on to San Francisco to book his passage on a vessel sailing for the islands. Although he was taking plenty of money with him, he was going to accept no pay for his work at Molokai. He outfitted himself with a few suits of cheap blue denims, clothes which were to be his uniform from then on. He sailed on an immigrant ship. On arriving at Honolulu, he went at once to Bishop Herman to ask for permission to go to the leper colony at Molokai. I would be very glad to have you go, said the bishop. I cannot give Father Damien the priests he needs, but neither can I give you permission. The colony is not under church jurisdiction, you know. It's not? Joseph Dutton was very much surprised. Why, I thought it was. A good many people think so, and the misapprehension often causes confusion and misunderstanding. It is really the province of Mr. Gibson, who administers the island for the king. Then I must see Mr. Gibson. Mr. Gibson was obviously well impressed with the tall, strong man, who looked less than his forty-three years. He was pleased with the offer of help, but rather puzzled. We cannot pay a large salary, he said hesitantly. It would be not nearly what. I don't want a salary, Joseph interrupted. I want to donate my services. He should work well with Father Damien, Mr. Gibson thought. They are two dedicated men. Aloud, he said, Well, if you change your mind, let me know. It will be easy to arrange a stipend for you, but it will be small, remember. I'll remember, smiled Joseph. You will plan to stay for a while? I hope to remain for the rest of my life, said Joseph gravely, but to make the matter more orderly, I have placed myself under the bishop's governance, and promised to stay for a year. I'll buy you a ticket for the steamer, said Mr. Gibson. Joseph reached into his pocket and drew out a ticket. The only landing at the leper settlement on Molokai was at Kalapapa. To that landing Father Damien used to go, each time a steamer was expected. In the early days he strode briskly along to the dock, and stood waiting to offer welcome, and consolation, to any lepers who might be arriving. On July 29, 1886, he was there as usual. 
Now, unable to walk so far, he had come in his old carriage drawn by an even older white horse. Joseph leaned on the rail of the little steamer, looking at the steep hills, or Polly, which cut the leper settlement off from the rest of the island. The grand, sheer hills were of almost overpowering beauty, as they stood guard over the peninsula on which the lepers lived. Thrusting out from the northern side of the island of Molokai, the leper colony seemed to catch more than its share of light and air. It was hard to accept the fact that in the midst of so much loveliness there was such great tragedy. The steamer dropped anchor, a small boat was put over the side, and Joseph Dutton was ferried to the pier, where Father Damien awaited whoever might be arriving. The old priest saw the man in blue denim come ashore. The newcomer did not look like a leper. It was not always possible to see the disease in early stages, but the man showed none of the strain so evident in an exile nor did he look like a government official come to inspect the island. But Father Damien saw that the boat which had brought him ashore was already returning to the ship. "'I am Joseph Dutton, Father Damien. I have come to help in your work.' There was a moment's silence. Then, with the simplicity of a child or of a very great man, Father Damien accepted the newcomer. "'Come, get into the carriage,' he said. I'll take you around the settlement. As they drove along, Father Damien chatted happily. The grass huts and shacks in which many of the lepers lived seemed crude enough to Joseph. He could not know how immeasurably better they were than the hovels which Father Damien had found there. The water supply was not adequate, but at least there was running water brought through pipes from a lake in the hills, by Father Damien's work and determination. Above all, there was life and hopefulness among the lepers now. That was Damien's greatest gift to them. Although he was aware that he had accomplished much, no one was more aware than the little priest of all that was still undone. Ideas and plans poured from his busy brain in an unending stream. I have so much wanted brothers here to help me with the work, but my community, the congregation of the Sacred Hearts, can't spare them, he said. But now you are here. You can be the first. We will call you Brother Joseph. A flush covered Joseph's face. It reflected the warm joy in his heart. As Brother Joseph, with an explanation, he was introduced to Dr. Moritz, physician for the colony. The doctor kept him for lunch and talked interestedly with him. What were his plans? I want to stay here and be of service, said Joseph. My plans? I don't know yet because I don't know what there is to be done, but my personal life will be guided by one resolve, to get along with everyone, to ask no special favors, to make no difficulty, that I can reasonably avoid, and to do all that I can to be helpful. In other words, to be a saint. The doctor did not voice his comment as he studied this strange, gray-eyed man. He and Father Damien shall work well together, the doctor decided. Both were rugged characters, both unusual, both dedicated. That evening, Brother Joseph sat with Father Damien in his little cottage adjoining the church. The pandanus tree over there was my home for some time after I arrived, said the priest, pointing to a great tree a little way off. It was a home that I shared with the birds in the branches and the rats who lived in its roots. The birds were not too bad as bedfellows, but somehow I could never warm up to the rodents. 
It sounds as if they were round now, said Joseph, becoming aware of a rustling and scratching and stirring outside. No, laughed Father Damien, those are my lepers. Word has been passed around that you are going to live with us, and they are eager to see you. Brother Joseph turned his head. The veranda was crowded, the doorway filled, and each window framed at least one inquisitive face. My door, you know, is never closed, Father Damien said. They come and go as they please. Only tonight, because they do not know you, they do not come in. But they do want to see you. The smile which Brother Joseph turned on the watchers assured them that here they had a friend. The next day Brother Joseph started his morning at half-past four. He threw himself into his chosen work. Under the supervision of Dr. Moritz, he learned to bathe and dress sores, to deal with patients who had dreadful afflictions. His strength gave confidence to children he handled. His tender gentleness brought responsive warmth from older patients. Dr. Moritz had sometimes found Father Damien inclined to disregard the physician's ideas of how things should be done. Brother Joseph's training in the army and with the Trappists had prepared him to take and execute orders. Naturally, the doctor was delighted with a new assistant. Father Damien had always been particularly devoted to the children of the colony, and had early established a home for the boys under his care. But the poor priest, who for so long had carried the burden almost single-handed, had never been able to get the place operating as he would have liked. True, the boys were safe, they had regular meals, they had a place to sleep, but there had been no one to direct their activities or to keep the financial accounts in order. Brother Joseph knew something about bookkeeping, so one of his first tasks was to get the ledgers in order. His hours at the boys' home made him aware of the fact that the inmates had very little to do, so he next decided that he would get them interested in games. He handed a ball to a lad, who made no effort to take it. He found it hard not to wince when he saw that all the boy's fingers were gone. He took it as a challenge to himself to evolve a game not too strenuous, which could be played entirely with the feet. For those whose feet and hands were both being eaten away, other activities must be found. For Joseph was sure that it was necessary to arouse interest and a spirit of competition in the boys. A healthy mental outlook was important. So, too, was discipline. But with that, Joseph never had trouble. Besides the knowledge of how to obey, service to his beloved country had taught him how to command. As the days passed, it was odd to see the two men, Father Damien and Brother Joseph, working together in the greatest harmony. There were so many basic differences between them. Father Damien spent little time tidying himself or his small home. He begrudged even minutes taken from work for his beloved charges. On the other hand, Brother Joseph had been methodical and orderly as a boy, and those qualities had been more firmly set during his years in the army. The blue denim suit, which was his self-chosen uniform in Kalawaho, was always clean, as was his person. Father Damien, obsessed with the knowledge that there was so much to do and so little time to do it, rushed at things madly. He was apt to start making something with no clear idea about how the finished article should look, and frequently it looked strange indeed. Sometimes it was so strange as to be unusable for the purpose for which he had intended it. But he always found a new use for the thing, if he got around to finishing it. 
Brother Joseph, on the other hand, planned his work carefully, did it neatly, stayed with it until it was done. Since childhood he had had a natural ability with tools, and the building he had done in the army had allowed him to put the ability to use. His first project was a building in which a new Japanese treatment for leprosy could be given. Then the dormitories which made up the boys' home needed repairing and additions, and there was work to be done enlarging the chapel. St. Philomena's Chapel had been large enough when Father Damien went to Kalawao, but many things had happened in the intervening years to necessitate a much roomier church. So every spare minute, every bit of material, all the physical strength that was available was turned to enlarging the church. Brother Joseph had been on an errand one day, and as he neared the church on his return, he heard the sound of hammering. Although he did call on his boys for help in moving stones for the foundation and in steadying timbers and joists for him, they were not supposed to do any work when he was not there to supervise, and at no time did they do any carpentry. He was annoyed as he hurried to find out who was proceeding with the work in his absence and to check on how it had been done. There was more than enough work to do on the island, he thought angrily, without having to tear out and do over. When he got to the church, he saw a ladder braced against the side and could make out the silhouette of someone busily nailing shingles to the roof. The sun was in his eyes, so he could not identify the carpenter. Who is that working on the roof? he called. One of the plasterers came from his work inside the church. We couldn't stop him, he panted, excusing himself in advance from any blame to come. He insisted that he must help us, must hurry the completion of the church. Who must help? Brother Joseph hardly needed to ask. Father Damien, of course. Who else? Sure enough, his hands were so swollen that most people would have thought them powerless. His eyes were so affected that their sight was very dim, and any light was painful. His legs were sore and unsteady, but he was up on the roof, shingling. Deep affection and strong exasperation mingled in Brother Joseph's heart as he negotiated Father Damien down from his perch and set him at a task somewhat safer for the handicapped priest. End of chapter 4